morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Doing good? Uh, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be spending our time in John 17. As we're journeying through Lent together in anticipation of Easter, we're using this prayer of Jesus in John 17 as a lens into the life, the heart, and the ministry of Christ. As Jesus prays for his disciples in this story, I think we get a picture of the identity that he longs for us to inhabit and cultivate. And during each week of Lent, as we head towards Easter, we're going to be picking, uh, zooming in on little pieces of this prayer in John 17. But this morning, as we start, I want to read a bunch of it, kind of get us into that room, get us into that prayer, and allow us to sort of contemplate what Christ is saying as he interacts with God. And to do this, I'm going to read this prayer in the message, and then when we come back to it in a few minutes, we'll look at it in a, in a translation that probably matches what's in front of you in your own Bible. But I, the message does this beautiful, has this beautiful way of rendering this prayer. So uh, where are we jumping in on this story? Jesus is sitting around a table with his disciples. He's teaching them. He's talking to them. And in the middle of this teaching, he turns to prayer. So imagine for a minute that you're in the room, that you're around the table with Jesus. He's turning his heart to prayer, and this is what he prays. Father, it's time. Display the bright splendor of your sun so the sun in turn may show your bright splendor. You put him in charge of everything human so he might give real and eternal life to all in his charge. And this is the real and eternal life that they know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I glorified you on earth by completing down to the last detail what you assigned me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with your very own splendor, the very splendor I had in your presence before, I was, before there was a world. I spelled out your character in detail to the men and women you gave me, they were yours in the first place, and then you gave them to me. And they have now done what you've said. They know now beyond the shadow of a doubt that everything you gave me is firsthand from you. For the message you gave me, I gave them. And they took it and were convinced that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the God-rejecting world but for those you gave me. For they are yours by right. Everything mine is yours and yours mine, and my life is on display in them. For I'm no longer going to be visible in the world. They'll continue in the world while I return to you. Holy Father, guard them as they pursue this life that you conferred as a gift through me so they can be one heart and mind as we are one heart and mind. As long as I was with them, I guarded them in the pursuit of the life you gave through me. I even posted a night watch, and not one of them got away, except for the rebel bent on destruction, the exception that proved the rule of Scripture. Now I'm returning to you. I'm saying these things in the world's hearing so my people can experience my joy completed in them. I gave them your word. The godless world hated them because of it, because they didn't join the world's ways just as I didn't join the world's ways. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, 
but that you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. Make them holy, consecrated with the truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. I'm consecrating myself for their sakes so there'll be truth consecrated in their mission. I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me. Because of them and their witness about me, the goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. So at first, this is a prayer. We see it as a prayer, as a conversation between Jesus and God. But at a deeper glance, it's revealed for what it is, which is a marked transition in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Have you had those moments in your own life where you've walked into a room or a conversation or an event in one reality and then you leave in a completely new world, a completely new reality? I think this happens a lot with devastating news. Just all of a sudden, everything is different. I'm reminded of September 11th, 2001. There's a marked difference between our pre-9-11 understanding of the world and a post-9-11 understanding of the world, and that difference can come down to a moment. Many of us remember where we were. Many of us would identify the moment as transition. But it's not just bad news that changes our world forever. In July last year, Janessa and I went to see our midwife to get some answers to some concerning things that Janessa was experiencing during the final weeks of her pregnancy. We were reassured that things would be fine. We just needed to have a routine check to confirm that things were good. So we were in a small room in the hospital. Hooked up, Janessa was hooked up to monitors and waiting for the all clear when we were told that the baby would be born in the next hour through cesarean. We entered the hospital in one reality with one set of expectations, and we left with a new reality suddenly as parents. So what is this dramatic shift taking place in John 17? Well, this prayer of Jesus marks a shift in his life away from his prophetic teaching, healing, his roaming ministry, and towards his priestly role of sacrifice and atonement, the laying down of his life. So it's a marked transition in what he's up to. He's been spending his days on mission to teach others about the kingdom of God and inviting those he's encountered to participate. In his prayer, Jesus says it's time for transition to take place, and he prays that God would prepare him for what's ahead. This marked transition is not only a shift for Jesus, but for his followers as well. The work that Jesus has been carrying out is to continue. The teaching, the healing, the announcing of the kingdom of God, it's not coming to an end. But he is leaving, and the work needs to be carried out by someone else. Jesus' prayer marks a shift in his ministry, as well as a shift in the role of his followers. They came to the table to commune with Jesus in one place, and they'll be leaving the table with a new role, a new identity, a new mission. This prayer in John 17 has three focuses. Jesus prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for those who will come to believe. This morning, we're going to take a closer look at the piece of this prayer where Jesus is praying for his disciples. Because he realizes that he's about to leave them, 
And it's time for them to continue the work that he's been doing to this point. In his conversation with God, he's relaying what has taken place and why it's time for this transition. It's clear that Jesus is confident in his disciples. And this confidence is part of why he's convinced that the time is now for a transition. A part of his work preparing his disciples is fulfilled. Verse 6 and 8, now in the NIV. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Where does Jesus' confidence in his disciples come from? Essentially, he says, I know that they know God. And I know that they know that God sent me. Jesus is saying in his prayer that his disciples are ready to carry out the mission that God has for them because they're aware of and believe in God and what he's up to. They're caught up in the story that God is telling. And for Jesus, this reality carries a lot of weight. He continues in his prayer asking for protection and guidance in his absence. I pray for them. This is verse 9. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. So we're given this sense that Jesus is leaving his disciples. He's determined that they're ready to take on a new task, and he longs for God to unify and protect them in his absence so that they can continue this work. But what's, this, what's the work? What's the task What is being asked of them? His prayer continues. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So Jesus' prayer suggests that his disciples are shaped in the story of God as they are given his word and his ways. It's shaping them in a way that's opposed them to the world that they find themselves in. So much so that they're hated and rejected by the world. The word sanctified shows up a lot in that little chunk that I just read, uh, which refers to the process of, of these followers of Jesus being made holy. We might, in our language, we might use the term uh, Christ-likeness, being made more Christ-like. Jesus' prayer for his followers is that this transformation towards godliness or Christ-likeness would take place, not in isolation, removed or hidden from the evils of the world, but while remaining in the world. And then it's verse 18 that carries the punchline for us this morning. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. The message says it this way In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. 
Jesus' presence on earth is easily thought of as a sentness. We think of God coming down to earth to take on flesh. God sent his son. There's a movement, there's an event, there's an action. But it's a little bit more difficult for us to see being sent as an identity. What is a sent person? We can identify what it looks like or feels like to be loved or what it looks like and feels like to be forgiven and experience growth and transformation, things that are described of the followers of Jesus in this prayer. But it's abstract to identify a person as a sent person. Jesus' prayer speaks clearly of the identity of his disciples. He, in the opening of the prayer, he speaks of eternal life. Later on, he speaks of those who will believe being loved by God, just as Jesus is loved by God. His disciples are also described in his prayer as being sanctified or transformed, as though God is doing an ongoing work in them. And then right in the middle of the prayer, these disciples are described as sent. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. As I was reading this prayer over this week, it resonated with me in a surprising way. And I think it might be that in this one simple prayer, we are given what feels like an extremely vibrant picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. As I contemplated the transition taking place through this prayer, the movement of the mission of God from Jesus to his followers, it's as though I could see the relay baton being handed to me. I felt connected to the story in a tangible way. When we begin our journey as Christ followers, we tend to go through a radical shift in our understanding of ourselves, of God, and of the world. And the transition often begins with an increasing grasp on the love that God has for us, or even just an awareness of the love that God has for us. And it often leads us to a place of experiencing God's forgiveness and grace at work in our lives. To some degree or another, I think we are constantly working out these two aspects of our identity as Christ followers. But as I've been sitting with this passage this week, I've started wondering if we often leave out a substantial piece of this new identity we are sent into the world as Christ was sent into the world. We definitely talk about what it means to be the presence of Christ in the world. We talk about being a presence in our neighborhoods, our workplaces. We talk about being sent into communities that need love and support. We spend time and money to send missionaries to communities locally and globally. We definitely long to be a people whose existence and presence make an impact on the world. But I got thinking this week about why it's so difficult to live this out on a personal level. In the time that I've been at Force U, the thing that's been most difficult to figure out is how to help the congregation live a life that is present to others in our communities and contexts when we're so busy, overwhelmed, and caught up in balancing the realities of everyday life. And I think there are a number of barriers in our way. Firstly, I think we've developed an understanding of sentness that is heavily built around events, campaigns, and strategic efforts. Around these parts, we've done initiatives like Share the Grill, a campaign to host barbecues and invite neighbors, or Church in the Neighborhood, a campaign to create geographically-based small groups to help us connect to our neighborhoods. We talk about street parties and dessert evenings and beyond. And strategic planning around caring for our communities 
is important and has its place. But I sometimes wonder if it's allowed us to place a lower priority on these events as a thing that we'll get to. When being sent is an activity to be cal- calendarized, is it easy, it's easy to understand how it falls to the bottom of our list again and again and again. Connecting with strangers, making space for others, sharing ourselves, our time, is a very difficult thing to do. Even for the most outgoing social butterflies among us. Secondly, another barrier is that privacy and autonomy are perceived to be value number one in our suburban neighborhoods. We've done such a good job of isolating our lives from the lives of others that when we realize what we and others actually need is connection and community, we find that we're fighting against the engineering of an entire way of life. There's very little natural form of connection in our communities, especially during the colder times of year. And so it can be easy to fear being a bother or a nuisance to those around us. The design of the communities in which we live and the habits we've developed while living in them have made it nearly impossible to develop meaningful connections with those on our street. There are physical and habitual barriers that need to be torn down if we hope to be a presence that connects with and cares for those around us. Thirdly, another barrier, I believe that we're fearful that we have little to offer. We aren't good enough. We don't know enough. We're not good enough to share our faith journey or our life with those around us. And of course, this isn't entirely bad because it reveals to us that we place a lot of value on authenticity and that deep down we long for our lives to point towards God and have impact. But it also points to the fact that we carry around this feeling of inadequacy. An interesting revelation from Jesus' prayer comes through his confidence in his followers. What's amazing is that just before he begins praying, sitting around the table, Jesus tells his disciples that they'll scatter, they're about to scatter and abandon him. Before they've even received this new mantle from Jesus, he reminds them of their imperfection. But he still invites them and calls them to continue his ministry on earth. They are still fit to be called sent and pick up the mantle that Jesus has for them. These three barriers are examples of the resistance we experience when it comes to being the presence of Christ to those around us. But ultimately, I think that they're a part of our biggest barrier. That we haven't settled into our identity as people who are sent. It's not just a job description. It's a picture of who we are. So if our identity as disciples is that we are loved by God, that we experience forgiveness and transformative work of God in our lives, and that we are sent as Jesus was sent, then I think we do a decent job at cultivating the first two parts of our identity, and not so much the third. We bathe ourselves in the first two. We sing songs about them. We read books about them. We memorize scriptures about them. We encourage those we love by reminding them of these realities. And even still, it can be difficult to really believe that we're loved, that we're forgiven, and that we're being transformed. How much harder, then, is it to live out an identity as sent ones when we really don't do as much to cultivate this part of our identity? So what would it mean? to cultivate the identity that we are sent as Jesus is sent. 
I want to think about three ways that we might cultivate this part of our identity. I apologize for the alliteration, but I want to think about our posture, our practice, and prayer. Generally speaking, our identity impacts the way we carry ourselves, the way we think of ourselves, and the way we interact with the world. Our identity forms the posture that we have towards others. So what's our posture? This question reminds me of a moment in Jesus' life when he sends out his disciples two by two. He instructs them to take no purse or sandal and to receive hospitality and support from those that they visit. This is a posture of trust. It's a posture of discovery and openness to what God is doing in the lives of others. And it's a posture of responsiveness. We don't show up with a ready-to-go agenda or action plan. Instead, we seek to encounter others. And we seek to encounter and discover God as we interact with others. So what does it look like to go without purse or sandal today? I think it might mean being hosted rather than doing all the hosting. It might mean getting to know people in their contexts, in their worlds, in the homes of others, or in spaces like community gardens. Engaging in these spaces involves relinquishing control. Turning our attention towards authentic discovery of others and towards listening to where, to where and how God might be speaking. Given the number of hurdles we have when it comes to living as sent people, the ultimate reality is that we have to practice. We have to develop instinctual habits that begin to nudge our time and attention towards others, eventually finding that there's less of a divide between the busyness and stresses of my life and the connection I share with neighbors and coworkers. So what are some ways we can begin practicing? Well, we can start planning for the warm weather cultivating relationships and presence in our neighborhoods through being outside. Walking a dog, visiting the park with kids, moving a chair to the front porch and sitting out there every once in a while. When was the last time you asked a neighbor for help? Uh, we, when we moved to our home about two years ago, very shortly after, our shower broke. And I couldn't find the water shut off. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> so I went, to, I went to my next door neighbor, who, uh, who I had met once or twice, and he happened to be working in the basement of his next-door neighbor. So within two minutes, I had met a new neighbor who then uh, took me to a third neighbor, and then two of them ended up coming back to my house to help me uh, figure out what was wrong with the shower. And so within like a half an hour span, I had connected with four or five neighbors uh, just because I had reached out to ask for help. When was the last time you asked a neighbor to borrow something? These small little practices over time begin to orient us towards those beyond the walls of our home and what God is doing in their midst. When it comes to prayer, are we praying for those around us? Are we praying that God, are we praying that we would be mindful of others? Are we praying that God would shape us as forgiven, loved, sent ones who are being transformed for the sake of the world? Would you ever consider taking prayer walks in your neighborhood, praying for the people on your street as you walk past their homes? I believe that God wants to shift our hearts and our eyes towards those that we're placed amongst. 
And I believe prayer is a part of the way that he'll do this work in us. In his book, The Bees of Rainbow Falls, Finding Faith, Imagination, and Delight in Your Neighborhood, Preston Puteau, a pastor from Alberta, reflects on his journey of cultivating neighborhood presence through beekeeping. In one of his reflections, he reflects on the concept of keystone species. These are species that shape entire ecosystems, and one such species is the honeybee. As pollinators, they have a direct impact on the food and the natural beauty that surrounds us. We depend on honeybees in a remarkable way, but it's easy to miss them. They are underwhelming and easy to ignore on their own, but their existence is fundamental to the thriving of other species and ecosystems. When I think of the ultimate expression of what living as sent ones would look like, I can't think of a better one than this. What if we lived in a way that though we live just ordinary lives, our presence has an essential impact on the thriving of those around us? You are loved by God. You have received the forgiveness of sins and have been reconciled with God. And you are sent into the world as Christ was sent into the world. Jesus prayed that his disciples would live out this identity Let's pray along with him. God, we long to be the people that you have called us to be. And we long to be a people whose transformation and whose, the fact that we're caught up in your story and the ways of your ways would, have, would shape our lives and therefore shape the lives of others. We long to make a difference and to have impact. But we recognize there's a million reasons why this isn't our, often our reality. We long to live into the identity. Would you shift our hearts? Would you shift our minds? Would you remind us again and again that we were rescued, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, and that we're sent? You're doing a work in us for the sake of others. Would you give us the creativity, the imagination that's required to break down the millions of walls that we have created to block us and keep us separate from other people? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us passion? Would you give us authenticity? We're grateful that you invite us in to your story. We long to be a part of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus said that he sends us into the world just like the Father sent him into the world. That's going to involve some sacrifice. It's going to involve some rethinking of our priorities. I was hearing Cole speak about those kind of things that are blocking us. Some, some of it is just we feel so busy. We're, we, we, we're, we're always doing something. And if we think of the, the being sent as a, an item on our calendar, then it's hard to, to know when we're ever going to fit this stuff in. I think one of the things we recognize, we're talking about being sent, is there's this, this sense that we, we need, like, I, I need the energy, Lord. How, am I, how, can I, how can I be sent when I'm feeling drained myself spiritually? And what I find really amazing is before 
Christ prays this prayer and, and kind of passes the baton and sends us forth, he makes sure that he leaves us with something that will spiritually sustain us, that will give us that energy. It's kind of like uh, if you're on the highway, you're going on the highway, you start seeing your, your fuel go really low, and you're thinking, I, I need a fueling station. Christ built into our pattern, our practices, a place and a time when we can make sure that we are powered for the sentness. We spend most of our time out and, and being sent, but he asks us to gather. And he asks us to make sure that we come to him to receive and remember that he is the fuel source for our being sent. And so he, he tells us, he takes bread and he, and he breaks and says, this is my body, it's broken for you. I was broken being sent, and I'm going to make sure that as you go, and you're going to be broken when you're sent, but I'm going to make sure you have the spiritual sustenance you need. And he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood, and it's been poured out for you. As you go forward being sent, make sure you remember that you are covered in the forgiveness of sins. No matter what you've been doing, no matter what you feel inside the guilt, that that is washed away clean. You are spiritually empowered to go forward and be sent. And so with that, we ask, Lord, that you would bless us. Would you bless the elements today? As we come, Lord God, would you fill us with your spiritual food so we remember our identity. We are your sent ones. Come to the table and be fueled for your sentness.